Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and today's episode is with Katie Jacobstan, founder and general partner of Moxie Ventures, a seed stage fund that focuses on companies that make life and work better. Katie is yet another great example of a fund manager coming to market with a very unique background. Prior to starting Moxie in 2019, Katie served in numerous executive operating roles at Twitter, Google, and Yahoo and also served in the Obama White House and State Department. Katie started her venture career as founding partner of Hashtag Angels and has invested in over 40 early stage companies, including Airtable, Cameo, Coinbase, and Carta. We discussed a number of interesting topics, including the necessity of speed and seed investing, the difference between institutional LPs and non-institutional LPs, and how she thinks about venture value add. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. Hey, Katie, great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Samir. One thing that's always struck me when I talk to uh, you know GPs, especially emerging ones, is how diverse their backgrounds are. You're certainly no exception. You've been in so many different roles in so many different states. And before we get into you starting Moxie in 2019, it would be great for you to walk through your background and how you got into investing. I like going way back in my career. I knew I wanted to do something that was international and something that was world positive. I just didn't know what path that could be. And I had a bunch of fits and starts and nonprofit and government. And then I got wildly uncreative and I went into investment banking. But it was really good to do because it gave me a set of skills to understand financial markets and financial modeling. And after doing that for about three years, I was looking for something to you know, again, bring me back to the roots of finding something international, world positive, something creative. And I remember doing a search online and uh, I went to Yahoo and Yahoo had just started the very beginnings of Yahoo Finance. And I thought, this is my path. Like I, they were missing all this financial content. I knew how to get that content and pitch to them why they should hire someone like me. And they were wonderful and just kind of shrugged and were like, sure, come on out. (laughs) And that became like, really my path in Silicon Valley. So moved out to California, was a product manager at Yahoo. Um, That really set the bar so high. What could possibly be better than working at Yahoo? And I found this job at Google and um, I was able to help build Google Finance and a couple of other products. And one of the other sets of products that we had built at the time were a suite of um, services and tools that political campaigns could use. And so we had shared those tools with the various different political parties. On the side, I was volunteering for the Obama campaign in 2007. And when he won the first um, election in 2008, I was invited to come join uh, the team at the White House to try to bring technology and modern tools into the government. And it was such an opportunity of a lifetime that I knew I couldn't turn that down. So my family and I, we moved out east. I worked um, in the White House and the State Department for a couple of years. Felt like I was missing Silicon Valley and had a little bit of FOMO, came back to the Valley, had this dream job at Twitter to help scale it internationally and build content around the world and did that. But while I was at Twitter, you know, in addition to, you know, build, helping to build the company, um, I was lucky enough to meet just so many amazing people, especially especially these five other women. Um, we're all executives in different roles, and we started to talk a lot about investing. And um, we each had done a little bit of angel investing on the side, but nothing that formal. And we thought, well, how do we like, you know, we see all these other like people that we know who are building companies and backing these companies. What do you need to do to become a real angel investor? 
And so we decided, you know, that, you know, one of the things that we could do is just kind of have this, you know, support network amongst ourselves, band together, called ourselves hashtag angels, and basically just said, we're open for business. We would love to invest. And how do we become great investors? And along the way, we realized that there is a is an increasingly important role for operators in the venture ecosystem to apply all their sets of experiences and networks to support companies at the earliest of stages. And also, we saw this huge inequity of women and people of color involved in this uh, this ecosystem. So we thought to ourselves, what are the you know what can we do? And so one of the missions that or the mission that we had for hashtag Angels was to get more women on the cap table of successful companies. And that just became super inspiring to me. I love working with early stage companies and helping them succeed. And so after doing this for a couple of years, decided to do it full time and create my own fund, Moxie. And I want to go back to the days leading up to starting Moxie. And I suspect that given all that great operating experience and investing experience, I've I've seen the track record of Hashtag Angels and it's phenomenal. What was the mental model for you? Because there's really two paths. The first path is you start your own firm. The second path is join an established shop, which I suspect there was plenty of opportunity. You said you wanted agency over control and decisions, and that's why you started Moxie. But what did that actually mean to you? And what were the pros and cons of the two options that you know, might have been avail- available to you at the time? Yeah, you're right. There are those two paths and the obvious and the rational path is to join a firm. The good news is that there are a lot of great firms in Silicon Valley and around the world. Um, But being based in California, I had firsthand experience of working and knowing a lot of um, great investors. And I went through that process of talking to different VCs, get a sense of what those opportunities look like. But the more I thought about it and really prompted by a few mentors of mine realized that the way for me personally, the way that I could get a lot of satisfaction in this business was to create something new. I had invested at that point in close to 40 companies and my mentors had you know, pointed out I had a good track record. I just needed the money um, and it felt kind of daunting, but I'm really glad I did it. And so the things that were important to me were, you know, first backing missions that I felt were world positive. What are those types of products and services that can make life and work better? The second thing that was really important to me was trying to back those businesses that can optimize for profit and purpose. I believe that they can coexist and it's hard, but I believe that they can do it. And so I wanted to be able to find those companies to help support them. And then lastly, trying to make a dent in the inequity that I had seen firsthand in terms of you know women getting funded, women getting access to investing opportunities, or even joining some of these companies early on. And I didn't think that there would be, I would be able to check all of those boxes at a traditional VC firm if I really wanted to make a change. And for anybody, if you want to make a change, sometimes you just have to create new institutions. So it was definitely the harder path. And there were times in my journey that I thought was probably the stupidest idea I'd ever had (laughs) because fundraising is hard. Um, But now looking backwards, I am so glad I did it. When you started Moxie, you decided to do it as a solo GP which, as you probably found out, can be a lonely path. You worked in so many different team environments in some large companies. What type of thought process was it about going on this alone versus partnering up with somebody? To be honest, this was the hardest thing I think I had to overcome. I'm an extrovert. I'm social. 
Growing up, I was always like active in sports and basketball and volleyball, all these team types of sports. And so doing this by myself felt, you know, scary. And when I started down this road, I did talk to a number of friends and partners to see like if we could do this together. But the thing about venture is that you have to have the right people at the right time with the same values if you really want this to work, because partnership risk is real. And realizing that I didn't have, you know, sort of that team environment, um, I needed to leverage the, the main benefit of going solo, which is speed. And I knew also that this would be sort of a short-term problem or for short-term challenge because I knew I wouldn't do this alone forever. I just needed to get started and quickly. So I was able to move really fast in terms of, you know, fundraising and setting up Moxie and, and starting to deploy the capital. And along the way too, I knew I wasn't alone because I have all these amazing networks of people that I trust that I could tap into when I needed help. Um, for example, I knew I could always lean on my hashtag angels group. I have a number of VCs who have been tremendous mentors and friends to kind of guide me along the way. You were so helpful to me in the early days of really trying to understand this landscape. And so there are a lot of high integrity, well-seasoned people in this space and a lot of mentorship that I knew I could plug and play into to help guide me in the right direction. Yeah. So it sounds like you still had this external village that you can lean on despite being a solo uh, GP. But beyond that, and a lot of people go through this adaptation of going from a team to individual. How did you make those adjustments? Were there things that you had to do that were brand new, i.e. prioritization, where you spent your time? What, what were those adjustments like if there were some? I think some of those adjustments were, you know, outsourcing and trying to build that institutional institutional capacity around me. So for example, I partnered with Carta to do my fund admin, and they've been amazing to work with and just taking sort of the operational logistics off of my plate. Um, so that was one thing that was really helpful. A second thing that was really helpful and actually game-changing was um, asking a friend of mine and a former colleague, Alex Redder, to join me as a venture partner. I had known Alex for now, I guess, something like 15 years. We knew each other at Google, then worked together at Twitter, where he was head of engineering. And as I was going through deal flow in those earliest of days, realizing my biggest gap was engineering. Um, you know, I've worn a lot of hats in my career, but I'm not an engineer. So I'd ask Alex from time to time if he could help me with the technical diligence. And we've always loved working together. I trust him. I respect him. And that just became really a great sort of um, rhythm to how I would build Moxie in those early days. And actually, we're going to start uh, Moxie Fund 2 together this year. And so he'll join me as a full-time partner. And so that gives me a lot of like confidence and reassurance and that sense of teamwork that has helped me institutionalize Moxie. Since you did bring up fundraise, let's go back to the fundraise for Fund 1. You closed the fund uh, raise in about six months, which is about a third of the average of an average fund one, which is about 17.6 months. What did you do before you actually launched the fundraise to mitigate you know, fundraise risk, the length of time? Were there certain things that you made sure you did you know, in terms of conversations or planning that helped you get comfortable with the fact that you were going to be able to raise the full fund? So funny you say that because it definitely did not feel fast at the time. <laughs> and I didn't have, I'm glad you didn't tell me that stat when I first met you because I had no expectations. I mean, some people did say it could take 12 to 18 months, but 
at that time when I was fundraising, I knew I didn't have 12 to 18 months. At that time, I was a single parent with three kids in high school. I had a bunch of family responsibilities and I just had a lot of people depending on me. And so I pushed really hard and there's no other secret besides that. I was, you know, on the phone, on the road a lot. It, you know, I was lucky enough, it was pre-pandemic. So traveled a lot and tried to meet as many LPs as I could. One thing that did help me actually very early on is that I had um, some great validators. And, um, and I think that's important. Some of those first names to, to back you. So, you know, one, of, one person was Chris Saka. I'd worked with Chris way, way back at Google. Um, he had become a really good friend. He went on, I remember when he was raising lower, lowercase capital and he asked me if I wanted to be an investor. And uh, what year is this? Probably 2006, 2007. And I was like, well, what does that mean? He's like, you give me money and I spend it. I was like, all right, well, what if you lose money? He's like, well, you lose money too. Like, what happened if you make money? He's like, well, I share it with you. I was like, okay. And that ended up being a great idea like because he ended up creating one of the highest performing funds of all time. And so his validation early on as an LP in Moxie was really huge. And he introduced me to a number of LPs. And on the institutional side, I'm forever grateful to Industry Ventures, who actually became my first institutional um, backer. And once you get a couple of those strong signals, I think it makes the you know the next conversations easier and easier. I'm not surprised that you you're saying that you felt like the fundraiser is really long. When you're in it, it is nonstop. And I think during the six months that you did it, you spoke to over 300 LPs. And I think I read somewhere that 30% of those LPs after a good first meeting ghosted you and never got back to you. And we see this a lot. And it's usually to preserve some type of optionality. People don't want to say no. I'm just curious, what did you learn about those experiences? And for the managers that are listening, are there any patterns to look out for to be able to distinguish between true believers and people that are really just providing some level of rhetoric? Yeah, I mean, ghosting is, is so weird. <laughs> I'd never experienced this as an operator. Like if you recruit and you decide not to hire someone, you tell them that you're not going to hire them. And usually you should tell them why. Or if you decide not to do a deal with someone, you usually tell them why and explain. And I think feedback and closure is a really good thing. So I was really stunned about this kind of culture and venture fundraising. Maybe I'm a little dense and or maybe it's because I'm just like this, you know, relentless optimist, but I would just keep following up thinking, did they lose my email? Like, wow, I haven't heard from them two, three, four times. Um, and it was kind of an uncomfortable feeling. I ultimately learned I shouldn't take this personally. You know, I started to talk to you know, a lot of people and ask them, why does this happen? And yes, you're right. Like optionality. I don't know how to eliminate this behavior, except for maybe just talking about it and saying it's like weird. It's not really productive or healthy. And a no is totally fine. And you, it can be a no right now or it's a no because I've saved some of the emails from those um, institutions that I met early who gave me a very long, detailed no. And I was so grateful for it. It will make me better over time. And it's just very respectful. And I try to do the same thing when I talk to founders um, and try to you know, be fast, to be courteous and to be honest and let people you know, know that it's a no. Are there other ways I can be helpful? Um, I just think it helps support the ecosystem and make things just better. It is a funny thing and definitely not personal. I mean, these things do happen, especially when you're raising a fund. But, you know, you did have a lot of true believers, both on the non-institutional individual family office side, as well as some of the great institutions that you had. 
Maybe if you could touch on the differences in those pitches. Yeah. And in fact, I realized I didn't answer your other question about patterns because I think they're related. Looking backwards again, um, you know, I think I was more successful when I really understood, is that LP in market? Are they looking for someone? Are they looking for more exposure to venture? Are they interested in emerging managers? And the more research you do in advance, obviously the higher, you know, the ROI you may have. I think I became a little bit better in the process of understanding like, okay, for each of these LPs, like how do I check a box for them? Like how do I add value to their overall portfolio? LPs meet so many people and so many funds. It's important to stand out and make sure that there's some kind of added value you can bring. For those who were looking for emerging managers, I think they were looking for, do you have great deal flow? Do you have great judgment? Do you have experience? You know, are you predictable? I think that's one big thing that maybe I had underestimated um, that is really valuable in this space. Are you going to do what you say you're going to do? LPs like financial markets don't like surprises. They want to make sure that you're bringing to the table exactly what they need. And then, you know, they look for references and they'll go on sheet and off sheet to make sure that you know, you're ethical, that that you can bring this value, you have the right judgment and sets of experiences. So I think those are the things that they're looking for and some of the diligence that they do. And, you know, of course, too, like I was, again, fortunate because I had done a lot of angel investing. So I had a track record to show. It was funny to me when I would get a no because I didn't have experience like, wait, <laughs> I've invested in these 40 companies and a lot of them are pretty good. Angel investing is different than fund and in, in investing and fund management. So there is a bit of a delta there that I've learned. Yeah. You mentioned something that I think is interesting is the the off balance or the off sheet references. Um, so the LPs calling people that you haven't presented to them, but oftentimes you hear about it afterwards because the person they called calls you. In those situations, what were they looking for? In, in your case, you were starting an institutional fund for the first time. Did you get a sense of what those off-sheet reference calls were like? Yeah. I mean, some of them were, um, did she add value? For, for a lot of founders, I knew um, LPs had called. For founders, they would ask, did Katie add value? Um, if you had the chance for her to write a bigger check, would you? Could she have led this round if she had a bigger fund or a bigger check? They want to make sure that, you know, I have a healthy relationship with founders. They would call other colleagues that I'd work with. What's, you know, Katie like as a team member, as someone that they may have managed over time. Those were the types of questions I think that they would ask. Ultimately, I think a lot of it goes down to trust and judgment. There have been bad players in this space. And so making sure that, and especially a lot of these LPs who are representing you know, really important institutions, you know, either higher education or healthcare or climate protection. So they're also accountable to their investors and their board to make sure that there's, you know, a lot of trust and good judgment along the way. On the topic of institutions, you have Foundry Industries, Sandana. And what I found fairly consistently, I think most people would agree, is that when institutions are assessing a particular fund manager, they're really forecasting out several years and fund vintages ahead and thinking about things like how much capital can I deploy behind a certain manager? What is the team going to look like? How does the fund or firm scale fund sizes? Does it scale? And really looking at all these considerations that are well beyond the now. Tell us a little bit about 
those conversations and whether you found that to be the case. Yeah, I I remember feeling surprised the first time I heard this question about describe Moxie in five to 10 years. And then I realized that actually it was part of everybody's um, Q&A. And then I should also say, too, that I feel very, very fortunate to have the trifecta of Sendana Foundering Industry. They are so A plus in terms of investors and helpfulness and knowledge that if you're a fund manager out there fundraising, I strongly, strongly advise and support the idea of talking to all three of them. They're just really phenomenal people and institutions. They've seen everything. Um, They've been really helpful to me. They had asked me this question and many other institutions had asked that question. And I, I love the boutiqueness of having a small firm to be able to manage relationships. You know, personally, I, you know, kind of value the quality necessarily um, more than the quantity of investment. So for fund one, I plan on having roughly 25 companies. Fund two will also be about 25 companies because I value those relationships with founders. I want to make sure I have the bandwidth and the time to support them. The other question that came up from many institutions were like, who do you admire? Who would you like to replicate yourself after? We have the luxury of lots of great examples. I mean, there are a lot of institutions that have done so well, but I think the two that I referenced the most were Homebrew and Forerunner. I love Homebrew for, um, I worked with Hunter and Satya many years ago at Google and then at Twitter, and they're just great people. They're great product thinkers. They're great investors. And I like how they also have had this boutiqueness of building Homebrew over a number of funds. And the other one that I, you know, with with Forerunner, I mean, Kirsten Green is just a legend, like who doesn't love and adore Kirsten Green. And I think she has built this, you know, tremendous track record and also a small, high powered team that has just made a lot of bets before everybody else. So those are the two that I end up referencing the most. Well, those are two great aspirational models for sure. And I think a lot of GPs, LPs and entrepreneurs would definitely uh, agree with that. Moving a little bit to your model of investing, and I know that you at Hashtag Angels focused on underrepresented, looking at people of color, looking at female-founded companies. While that's not exclusive to Moxie, I'd be curious on how does that shape how you think about things like sourcing? Is there anything intentionally you do to make sure that you're seeing those type of founders consistently? I've tried to do a better job of diversifying my sourcing. And so working with other funds and doing these regular calls on Zooms now, I guess, with um, those firms that just have very different types of pipelines, Um, you know, either they're based in Nashville um, or New York or talking with your fund managers who come from very different backgrounds than mine. And that has really, I think, up leveled and increased sort of the diversity in my pipeline. And I try to make sure that I'm spending time with, again, like just very different types of people and very different types of missions and very different types of experiences. So that that has been helpful. I will say though, something really weird has happened this year. And I it's hard to quantify, but I see this outside of venture that's been quantified, which is like, I feel like the pipeline of women and people of color as founders has dropped significantly. Pre-COVID, my portfolio was predominantly female-led, or my pipeline too, um, and with people of color. And I don't know if it's you know both caregiving needs. It's something that I've been keeping my eye on and trying to be really attentive to to make sure that I'm still seeing a diverse set of of founders. And the other thing too, like what we found with hashtag angels. 
when we did this study with Carta a couple of years ago, trying to quantify the inequity and equity and how much equity goes to men versus women. We didn't have race data at that time. And the TLDR is, it's terrible. And roughly 9% of equity across founders and investors and employees and executives, you know, uh, only 9% of that goes to women. And what are the things that we can do? So it's not just making sure that we're funding diverse founders, but also bringing those diverse investors to the cap table bringing those first diverse employees to those teams early on when they tend to get, you know, higher equity grants, making sure that as, you know, these teams grow and they're looking for executives, making sure they have those diverse types of of leaders. So there are lots of ways to like bring equity to this space. It's not just in terms of like funding, even though that is, you know, a very large thing to do. So it's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about and I do a quarterly report for my LPs to make sure I'm holding myself accountable. Um, in terms of what my portfolio looks like and um, doing whatever I can to showcase the best that is possible. Are you finding uh, just in those conversations with your LPs, is that something that they're paying attention to in terms of managers investing in diverse founders? I wish I could say all of them. I think a lot of them do care. Um, I do get notes from them like, thank you for including this. This is really helpful. You know, I wish I could say 100% of LPs care, but I think we're moving in the right direction. That's great. And and hopefully that does continue. Speaking of, you know, working with founders. So you as an investor, I I was asked the question of what is that specific value add that provides some level of competitive mode? And and some would say, you know, what is your superpower? Before you started Moxie, how much thought did you give into what your advantage was? And how would you yourself describe what your superpower is in helping uh, portfolio founders? I think maybe tying it back to the very beginning, like kind of diverse slash random, my professional experience has been um, in terms of, you know, Yahoo, Google, Twitter, and then the White House. Those are very like, you know, some similar networks, but some really different networks. So I have a great Obama alumni network that I can tap into. And now many of whom are joining the Biden administration. but many of whom can help advise on regulatory issues. And that's quite different. My role at Twitter was, you know, super fun and super chaotic and crazy about how do you onboard, you know, the world's best content providers and creators onto the network. And as a result, I have, you know, kind of really interesting types of, um, you know, connections, I guess, or relationships with people in sports and in talent and in journalism that, from time to time I can bring to the table. So one of my like favorite and most like kind of crazy uh, story is I was an early investor in Prey.com. My team when I was at Twitter helped onboard the Pope at the Vatican. So after the Prey.com team was, you know, growing, I was able to connect them to the folks at the Vatican. And so the Prey engineers went to Rome and participated in the Vatican's very first hackathon. And it's not like something I could recreate multiple times. It was a very specific type of, you know, connection, but it was super fun and um and really rewarding. So I try to bring, you know, some kind of um order, I guess, to that chaos of those, you know, relationships and try to be as helpful as I can. And the other thing too that is much more practical, um, especially early on, is recruiting. For most early stage companies, the biggest challenge is hiring great team members, either in engineering or marketing. And and so I've tried to partner with different organizations. One of my portfolio companies is Alpha, which is a community for women in tech, and they have a job board and helping to make sure that all of our portfolio 
high priority jobs are listed on Alpha and working with external recruiters to help with very specific must hire candidates. Um, so I can kind of remove those roadblocks. And Alex has also been tremendously helpful on the engineering side, providing that kind of mentorship to founding, um, you know, engineers and CTOs to give them sort of, you know, a coach to help them navigate through thorny issues. Well, I can tell you, I did not know the Vatican had a hackathon, but it does speak to uh, where we are right now in the world of technology and innovation. Going back to something that you had said earlier, it was around some of the institutional LPs looking out ahead and thinking about how do you stay competitive and what is the evolution of Moxie? And you mentioned Alex coming on now as full-time partner from being part-time, but what are some of the other things that you're thinking about in how you evolve as an organization to maintain that competitive edge. Obviously, adding Alex as a second full-time partner will be helpful. So right now, he's just been part-time. So having Alex full-time is going to help. I would love to hire an operations person to take off all the op stuff that happens, which was something of a surprise to me of like, fund management is it, it's a it's a lot of work um, in LP management and fundraising. So I hope to put together a job description soon. If anyone is looking, please let me know. And I think, you know, those two things will significantly like lighten my like load in terms of being able to be strategic and help source and help um, you know, spend more time with founders. It's also helpful too that my three kids are now in college. And so there's less of that sort of like day to day. So like Moxie is basically my fourth baby that I can spend a lot of time with. I'm glad you brought up the operational piece. It's something that you're not alone in underestimating how much time you spend on non-investing activities. In fact, we ran a survey, I think it was about a year ago. And our managers said on average, 20% of their time is on non-investing activities. So things like operations, working with LPs, doing things that are really related to building a firm and running a company. How have you found that? I'd just be curious in the year that now you've been running Moxie, how significant of a time commitment is the stuff that's not investing in entrepreneurs and helping them? It really is. You're totally right. Like it is, you know, kind of unexpected that it would take this much time you know, you know, you're sending a wire or, you know, um, especially if you have a lot of LPs, which most first time managers do from time to time, they'll, you know, an LP may change, you know, their LLC to something else. And you have to do a transfer agreement. You go back and forth with legal and like just these things, they really do, they add up. And so, um, so they do interfere with your investing time and your mind space. So those are the things that over time you can outsource. I'm really glad I've done all of it because now I know how things work. And I think it's really important as an owner, like you just have to understand how things work from start to finish, but you can outsource these things. Again, Carta has been really, really helpful. Um, taking some of these things off of my plate, surrounding yourself with those institutions, you know, I use Cooley for legal and they've also been really helpful and really fast. And they're so great making sure that you align yourself with those institutions like First Republic and others that can really offer you best in class services. So you just don't have to worry. It's definitely true. And I always uh, you know, laugh and chuckle when I hear people say, well, no, I'll outsource everything. I don't have to do anything. And in reality, there's still a lot of those things that you have to continue to manage. So I really appreciate you. You touched on that. I want to move to the uh, end of our segment, which is our heat check round. And I have three questions. You've actually answered one already, so I'll have to change that. But now that you're 12 months in, what advice would you give to somebody just starting up right now? Be patient. This takes a long time to get right and to know if you're any good. And just to make sure you're in it for the right reason. 
you know, the people I know who've been most successful are the ones that really want to spend their time with founders and build something that is everlasting. This is not like a lifestyle job. Like this is something that consumes a lot of you. So as long as your heart is in it and you're so excited about being in this for long-term, be patient, be rigorous and get it right. It is a long-term commitment. The actual, the funny thing is the average fund, especially a seed fund before the last portfolio company is liquidated, it could be anywhere between 12 and 16 years. So this is not a uh, one or two year commitment. So I'm glad you said that. You've invested both as an individual through hashtag angels and now Moxie. And almost every single investor I talked to has that one company that got away where they either missed it, they looked at it, decided not to invest. And commonly we call that the anti-portfolio. Is there a company out there that you know you look back and say, I really wish I did it, I missed it? And if so, who would that company be and what did you learn from it? Chime. I miss Chime. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like such a dummy. We had access um, to Chime when we were at Hashtag Angels. And the reason, you know, I really miss was, you know, basically sloppy. Um, I was busy at Twitter. It was my full-time job. I saw an email come through. I asked somebody who I knew who was at Chime, hey, what do you think? And they weren't really happy there. They're like, I don't know. And I just kind of moved on. It's understandable, especially as an angel. And you're looking at lots of things. And maybe you're busy with your full-time job. but. That one haunts me because I would have loved that company, just mission and team. And I wish I had had the time at that time to really like give that a thorough look. Um, I'm super happy for their success. I think it's just an awesome product. But I've learned like if I see something that just kind of looks good, not to kind of do one reference check to just really dig in. And it's part of the reason, frankly, why I've become a full-time investor. So I have that time to, to dig in as much as possible. I don't think you're alone in missing you know, companies like that. So the last question I originally had was the investor you admire the most and why. And you've already, I think, earlier mentioned uh, Homebrew and, and Forerunner in uh, Kirsten Green. But the other question I have is related to all of your experiences that you've had collectively leading up to being an investor. Is there an experience in particular that you felt has led and provided you the most value to being a great investor? I do think my experience with Hashtag Angels was the best ramp up. The best way to learn something is just by doing it. And having also sort of the security of a number of friends and colleagues that you really trust around you to ask your dumb questions, get their thoughtful insights, to share deal flow. I think that experience over a number of years was really fundamental to guiding me there. I venture was never something that I thought I would do when I, you know, became a big girl. <laughs> I, it, it didn't even occur to me, but I think it was, you know, those years with hashtag angels that really led me to this moment, and I'm I'm super grateful for it. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I do find some of the best VCs were accidental VCs and didn't have a, a long planning cycle to become one uh, early on, but. Uh, Katie, this has been great. I really appreciate you being on the show. It's been a lot of fun. And, and again, thanks for all the support over the years. Thank you so much for having me, Samir. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Venture Unlocked. To learn more about Katie and Moxie Ventures, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. 